This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Today, joining me is Captain Kaylee Bordner to discuss cargo flying careers. But before we start, a few announcements. This podcast is sponsored by PlainEnglishSim.com. It's the app-based aviation radio simulator. And what they've done is they put a coupon together. It's simply Plain English Sim Coupon, so you can get a free scholarships guide. Uh, please visit them at PlainEnglishSim.com, and also if you want to get that free scholarships guide, go to AviationCareersPodcast.com, click on scholarships. So always adding new scholarships. We're over 1,000 pages, well over $50 million in scholarships for everybody in all different careers. We have a new section, scholarships for adults that are out there. Also visit our uh, YouTube channel. We have a new one out there. It talks about if ATC gives you a number to call, should you make that call? And it's a really good video. Talk to an aviation attorney who has some great perspective on whether you should make that call or not. Well, I'm with the show, and uh, joining me today is uh, Kaylee Bordner and uh, cargo pilot with Ameriflight. Kaylee, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome having you here. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Also uh, joining us today is our uh, program coordinator, uh, Matt Len. Hey, Matt, how's it going, buddy? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Matt's also in, in sunny Florida. I know you're up there in a little bit cooler country there, Kaylee. It's, uh, uh, but, uh, but you've been flying all day. I really appreciate you doing this because I know that uh, the life of a cargo pilot can be a, a little bit different as far as hours are concerned. You were talking about how you were, were up pretty late at night, weren't you? Yeah. So, um, last night or yesterday, um, my typical day starts at four 30 in the morning. I'll wake up, um, head to the airport and do a morning route. Well, yesterday we had, uh, thunderstorms and high winds riddling across Nebraska. So I couldn't make it to my, um, usual destination out in Broken Bow, Nebraska. So they had me divert to Kearney, Nebraska. And I got there, I think around like nine o'clock in the morning or so. And then I got to sit all day and wait to see what the weather was going to do. Um, ended up having wind gusts over 50 knots, um, thunderstorms. So they just had me sit and stay there the night. Um, woke up at 3.30 this morning, got out to the airport at 4, repositioned to Omaha. Um, that way I could load up cargo from UPS and then uh, did my route from um, Omaha, Hastings, Nebraska, Broken Bow. And uh, I think I got here around 9.30 this morning. So yeah, it's been been a long few past hours, but it's been good. You know, well, I'm listening to you talk, and I'm like, what's it like to be a typical cargo pilot? Well, you just did it. You just explained it right there in that scenario. Uh, you know, and one of the things, we're recording this, I think it was, well, anyway, there was like a tropical storm that's hitting uh, that area, and it really affects, especially the cargo pilots, because uh, you do fly in all sorts of weather, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Anything, I've flown in icing conditions, I've flown not into thunderstorms, I try and avoid that. Um, but definitely around them. Um, if you feel comfortable, you're pretty much going. Um, as long as it's within our operation specifications, we're legal to go, you try. 
Wow. Well, you know, before we get into the whole cargo thing, I know I've I've watched some of your journey uh, and getting to the to the flight deck. It's uh, not been easy, uh, but I don't think anybody's is easy. And it's so neat to see you overcome that adversity. But tell us a little bit about how you got uh, into aviation in general. I think you have kind of a unique perspective. Yeah, so I grew up on a small family farm in Indiana. Um, we had nobody in our family that was in aviation that I knew of um, growing up. Um, so living out on the farm in a small town, you don't have a lot of traffic noise. You don't have a lot of sirens. So one of the noises that you always hear are these airplanes flying over. So as a young child, whenever I would hear something cool like a helicopter or a military airplane or even just like a plane in general, I'd run outside and play a game of whether I could look up and try and find it in the sky. And I was always, always so fascinated by them. Um, but we never went anywhere on vacation via the airlines. So I never knew that the airlines were a career. I just knew that military was a career. Um, cause my dad worked on a aircraft carrier, um, the USS independence, and he was a green jacket. So, um, for all of you who don't know what a green jacket on an aircraft carrier is, they're in charge of um, catapults and arresting gears. They're on those crews, air wing maintenance personnel, cargo handling. Um, they're hook runners. Sometimes like if there's a photographer aboard the ship, they're that photographers, like basically escort mate, if you want to say that, um, and quite a few other things. So my dad was in charge of primarily the arresting cable. Um, and occasionally he would go up to the catapult and hook up like F-14 Tomcats and F-18s. And they had the uh, A-6 intruders and all that kind of stuff on board. So whenever we would end up watching Top Gun, um, he would put the surround sound on, like crank it all the way up be like, this isn't even half of what it sounded like on the carrier deck. And I'm always like, damn, turn it down it's loud um and so so he would always tell me about um all of his experiences with the tomcats and the hornets and stuff like that and so it just kind of like sparked my interest a little bit more but again like i had no idea that aviation was a career path because it wasn't discussed in my school pretty much like it was oh you want to do nursing you want to do engineering stuff like that but no mention of aviation whatsoever um, so it wasn't until I got a little bit older and I was actually watching a movie and I was like, wow, those are, that's really cool. I'm going to join the Air Force. And um, I started researching it a little bit more. And then I decided not to go the Air Force route just because there's, there was this huge pilot shortage that everybody was talking about. Um, and I didn't want to be hooked into a military like contract um, for eight more years if I wasn't going to get a flight slot, like I wanted to fly. And so, um, I decided I would go the civilian route. My parents were 110% behind me. Um, junior year of high school, my mom's like, is this actually what you want to do? And I told her, I said, I don't know what I want to do with my life other than this. Um, again, I had never been in an airplane. I had never touched an airplane. The only thing that I had seen up close and personal was like at Pensacola Museum. Um, we went there, we'd go to a couple different other aviation museums. So that's like the only interaction I had ever had with aviation. Uh, so she said, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll start looking into doing uh, flight lessons. So we got in touch with a training, um, a flight training school out of Kokomo, Indiana. And we went out there and they got me um, 
started. And my first lesson was, I think it was in July or August of 2012. And it was in a J3 Cub off a grass strip just outside of Kokomo. Um, Glendale is the airport. And after that first flight, I was hooked. Um, my instructor came back and there was a gentleman there that we call our, I call him my airport grandpa because he's just like a big teddy bear. Um, he, she kind of like leaned over to him and was just like, uh, yeah, she's got the bug. And they basically were just like, yeah, she's, there's no going back for her. This is, this is what she's meant to do. Um, so that's kind of how I got started in aviation and kind of came to the um, world of aviation. Uh, after I got my private pilot's license, I did that the Sunday before I was supposed to be moving to college to start um, my my basically college journey through aviation. Um, so I was so nervous on my check ride because I'm like, I have to get this done or else I can't start my instrument. And I was in all of my instrument classes in school, like at uh, Indiana State University. So um, got the check ride done, went on to go to college to earn my instrument, commercial, multi, uh, CFI, and then I eventually got my double I um, during an internship that I did. So that's kind of how I got started. So as far as the college is concerned, I mean, that's an awesome story. And it's, it's wonderful to hear how people get uh, their passion for aviation. And it wasn't directly through flying, but it, you were involved in aviation quite a bit from a historical uh, perspective and also from, from your father. As far as the university, though, when you decided to actually get into aviation, how is it that you went about finding a place to go to college for an actual aviation program? So my mom worked at Purdue. My dad had gone to Purdue. My mom was a Purdue grad. So Purdue is pretty well known across the nation, if not the world, for their aviation program. Um, so originally, I thought I was going to be going to Purdue. I was just like, I'm going to Purdue. That is the like, that's the only place I'm going to apply because my mom, um, my parents were basically like, you have to go to in-state or an in-state college because, um, you know, my dad's a farmer. Um, he works, uh, he also drives a semi and hauls hogs for his second job or his primary job. And we farm for our second job. Um, and my mom is an accountant at Purdue. So we don't really come from a lot of money. We're well off and comfortable, but definitely not enough to just like completely foot the bill for an entire four year degree in aviation. Um, and so out of state was out of the question. So she's like, okay, if you're going to apply to Purdue, you at least need a backup plan. And I had no idea that there were any other schools in Indiana. I thought it was just Purdue. And so she went through and started looking. It's like, well, if you don't get into Purdue, you um, here's this other school, Indiana State University, that you should apply for just in case. I'm like, great, Mom, thanks. That's definite vote of confidence right there. Um but it turned out that it was the College Go Week, and that's a week, um, I forget what week exactly it is, but it's a week where basically the, um, colleges across the country waive their application fee. And so my mom's like, you might as well just apply. There's no application fee. Just do it and see what happens. I got accepted to both programs, um, but Indiana State University ended up offering me more um, financial support and opportunities. I ended up getting the President Scholar, which was close to a full-ride scholarship, um, and then through my school, my high school, um, 
I was, I filled out, I spent my entire senior year just like filling out scholarship after scholarship because I was going to pay my way through school and I was not going to come out of school with any debt. And so with ISU giving me more money, I went down, I toured their campus um, and it was a lot smaller than Purdue. I felt more um, at home at ISU. I didn't feel like I was getting lost in a crowd. Uh, and so that's how I kind of chose ISU over Purdue. They're both great programs. Um, the programs themselves really weren't um, a deciding factor. It was more of how did I feel and where did I feel I fit better. Um, so for anybody out there who's looking into colleges, definitely do college visits. Um, look at financial opportunities. Um, I stress scholarships a lot because like I said, my goal was to graduate debt-free and I managed to graduate with a four-year degree in aviation debt-free. Um, apply yourself through high school. I graduated eighth in my class. Um, in high school and I literally just studied. I was the nerd in high school. I didn't, I was like the goody two shoes, but in the long run, it pays off because now I'm doing what I love right out of the gate and I'm not strapped paying student loans off. And I, I, awesome. I didn't expect that, honestly. So if I can do it, anybody else can do it. It's just a matter of putting in the work and applying yourself. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned scholarships, and you did a lot of work there. Uh, I think a lot of people give up when mm -hmm. they're looking for scholarships, and you really can't do that. You're a great example of that. I'm sure there must have been somebody that may have turned you down. Did you ever have that happen? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, every night when I came home uh, my senior year, I was looking through scholarship after scholarship, and um, I applied for I don't know how many um, my saving grace was the fact that I did get the president scholarship through Indiana State University. I had to go in and interview for that one. And I was the second round in February. So they split up their uh, scholarship like interview days. There's one in January that takes like 70 kids and there's one in February. So total, there's almost 140 kids that are going into interview for this scholarship. And you have to be invited to go to the interview by your GPA that you got in high school. So that's why your GPA in high school is very important, kids. Um, and so when I went there, I was just like, I'm sitting next to like what seemed like, you know, a Harvard professor's daughter, or like a rocket scientist son or something like that. I'm like this small farm girl, you know, from rural Indiana, like, what do I have to offer? And I went in and there was a um, essay you had to write. There was an actual face-to-face -face interview that you had to do with um, a panel. And then there was like a group activity to see how your leadership skills were and just like your troubleshooting um, skills. And I thought that I was not even going to be looked at for it. And a month later, I got a phone call and it's, they said, congratulations, you've received this scholarship. And I like started crying because I was just like this. It was so much of a relief. Um, so that was the big godsend for me financially. And then um, I was awarded a renewable scholarship, which was the second one. So really, there's only two scholarships. Um, and then I had a couple miscellaneous ones, but it was primarily those two scholarships out of at least 20 or more that I applied for 
that was my saving grace and allowed me to pay my way through school. So don't just stop with one scholarship. And if you don't get it, you know, yeah. keep going, keep trying. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, you talked about uh, college aviation too, and this is great. I mean, just hats off to you for winning all those scholarships. But there's some people are thinking, should I go into an aviation program uh, in a college? Uh, what do you feel? I mean, do you feel it's beneficial to be in an aviation program through a college? Um, I feel it benefited me um, because it allowed me an avenue to learn more about um, specialized subjects such as weather, such as turbine systems um, or piston aircraft systems, uh, stuff like that. If you have a really good flight school around you, um, like a, at a just a mom and pop you know, flight school that has like super amazing instructors. Um, sometimes I feel like it's also beneficial to go to school for maybe like business and get your aviation ratings outside of school. So you have kind of that second, um, backup plan in case you lose your medical in case COVID-19 hits, um, that kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of a, um, six, six, you know, eggs one way, half a dozen the other kind of thing. Um, but for me, I really enjoyed going to college for, for it because like I said, we had a really in-depth weather class, which made me understand weather. Um, like none other, uh, the professor would literally come into our class in the morning. First day that we ever had the class, he is a retired Marine, like meteorologist or something. And he just walks into class. Good morning class. And we're all like, Oh my goodness. Like deer in the headlight look. And he's like, are you ready for weather? And we're all like, yeah, I guess so. Um, and he really, he really, um, you know, had us understanding whether like I had never imagined I would before. Um, so that's a plus, especially being a pilot, you know, you kind of need to know weather. Um, and then the turbine systems, you know, at the time you're not really thinking much about flying turbine aircraft. When you start out, you're just like, I need to get through my ratings kind of thing. But it was nice having those structured classes because now when I went to um, when I got my job with Ameriflight, it made going through systems so much easier because it's I already knew what I was looking at when I was looking at the different, um, you know, turbine compressor sections and the just the basic concept of a turbine um, engine. And then at Indiana State University, we also had a King Air B200 class, which we took an entire semester to simply learn about the B200. So flying the 99 now for Ameriflight, um, having that background in that King Air Beechcraft systems, they're very, very similar. So when I transitioned from the Brasilia to the 99, it was pretty easy systems wise because it's already stuff that I was familiar with. I wouldn't have gotten that if I went to college, but it depends on what college you're going to. So I I can only speak for how ISU or Indiana State University helped me. not for like any other schools. So as far as the depth of knowledge, uh, as far as an aviation program, obviously, hands down, obviously you're going to get much more depth of knowledge, mm-hmm. like you said. Also, I think networking is a is really good, and especially the opportunity uh, for internships. And you actually said something before about internships. So you were able to get one. And was that because of being at college? 
Uh, that was actually because one of our family's friends, his sister-in-law worked at UPS in their flight department. Um, so it wasn't necessarily because of Indiana State, but when UPS started up their internship program again, they actually sent like a, a notice or something like that to uh, Indiana State's flight department, which they then extended it out to all the students. So one of my classmates, her dad works for UPS um, as a desk job. He's not a pilot, but she found out about the UPS internship through ISU and she ended up going to the UPS internship because of ISU um, gave her that, that, you know, email letting her know that it was available. I, on the other hand, had contacted, um, my friend's sister-in-law and she got me started. And when, when it opened up, she directly emailed me the link to fill out the application for the internship. So internships in general, do you think they're worth it? We get that question often, you know, are internships worth it and why? Yes. I think the internships are worth every hour you spend in them. Um, I was up in the air. I originally, when I started in aviation, thought I was going to go military, decided not to do that. Then I didn't really know what route to take because I had never been on an airliner. Um, my first uh, airline trip was actually after I had started my private pilot's license. So that was kind of a fun, um, fun tidbit. Um, but I didn't know anything about the aviation industry aside from what dad had told me about the Navy. And so going into an internship, it allows you to really look at the company and also what style, um, whether you're doing, you know, um, regional, whether you're doing cargo, whether you're doing, you know, Delta 121, um, corporate, whatever you're doing, it allows you to get a behind the scenes feel for not only the company, but the industry. So if you're up in the air like me on, well, do I want to go corporate? Do I want to go airlines? Do, what, what do I want to do? Um, it gives you some more knowledge to base it on. If you liked the internship, but you didn't love most of the aspects about it, you can go and get like a different internship. You know, let's say you did a corporate internship. And you didn't necessarily like, you know, how the pilot schedule worked or whatever. You can go and get an internship with UPS, Delta, whatever, and you can see how that weighs out. So then you have um, basically a platform of knowledge to make your decision on. Uh, that's how I viewed it. Um, so it gave me a lot of knowledge. I only did the UPS internship. Absolutely loved it. I would recommend that internship to Anybody who's looking for an internship or wants to learn more about the cargo flying, um, I guess we could probably include a link or something in. The yeah, show oh, definitely. Well, we'll have we have them. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you said that. All the videos mm -hmm. and everything we talked about, articles you've been in, we'd have it in the uh, show notes here. So we'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the internship though, did that does that mean you automatically get a job at UPS? How does that work? So UPS, you don't automatically get a job, but they did a partner with um, Ameriflight and it's the UPS flight path program. And so if you're wanting to continue on your route um, and work your way back to UPS, you can um, get hired on with Ameriflight per or whether you meet the standards and stuff like that um, and the hiring requirements. Um, but you can hire on with Ameriflight, go there, get time, get experience, um, check mark all the boxes of the path one for the internships for the program. And to kind of backtrack and give a little bit more direct line, um, 
the phase one or there's the path one. Sorry, they changed it on me when I was halfway through the program. They always do. <laughs> right. The path one um, is strictly for interns. So that's what I'm in. There's a path two for everybody else at Ameriflight who's wanting to get into it. With path one, you start out as a UPS intern and then you get hired with Ameriflight, check mark all the boxes of that path one program, aka basically meeting 1500 hours turbine PIC, getting your ATP, getting a type rating, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then once you meet that, uh, requirements, you can then, you have a guaranteed interview with UPS, not a guaranteed job, unfortunately, but a guaranteed interview path two is for everybody else at Ameriflight. I believe you have to apply for it and be accepted into the program, but it's basically the same thing. You have to check mark all the boxes. And then after, um, your three year stint is up then you get a guaranteed interview. A lot of guys recently um, from Ameriflight have gotten hired at UPS through this UPS Flight Path program with Ameriflight. Um, so doing an internship might not guarantee you a job right away, but it definitely allows you to go in and network. So I know a ton of people back at UPS. Um, they're all rooting for all the interns to come back. They can't wait to see all the interns come back. Um, so it definitely gets your foot in the door with the company. So even though I still have to interview, it might be, you know, somebody across the interview table that I know, and they know my reputation, they know the work ethic, they know kind of the person that they're hiring already. So it gives you that higher up advantage. So during the internship, did you actually get to do any flying either in the sim or in the airplane? Oh, yeah, they checked me out in the sim the first moment they got. So how the internship went with me, um, I started out and I shadowed one crew through their entire training process. I went through systems with them. I went through their um, cockpit procedural training um, and I got to sit in on all of their sim sessions. So basically got to see the true footprint of a UPS 7576 um, training program. Then after I got done with that, they certified me in the sim to do what we called sim tours. So what UPS does is for some of their customers like um, Dell, PetSmart, whoever wants to ship with them, they or has been shipping with them, they bring them in and they give them um, a facility tour. So it starts out with a presentation from, I think, the marketing team or their um some other team that's not really related to flight per se. Um, they go in, give them a whole, you know, rundown spiel about what Worldport is, which is their facility in Louisville. Um, like how UPS uses the latest technology to do shipping, yada, yada, yada. And then they would um, pass them off to me. And this would be at like one, two in the morning as well because that's when Worldport's the busiest. So I would stay up pretty much all afternoon. They'd come to me um, at this one, two in the morning. And then we'd go back to the sim and I'd give them a quote unquote like sim tour. So it's basically throw them in the sim for an hour and show them kind of like how the airplane flies. I'd put everybody up in the front seat. My sim tour was basically flying down the Vegas strip. Um, I'd have them take off. We'd go out, get the feel. I'd show them, okay, this is kind of how an airplane handles. Um, here's all the different, um, knobs and dials and gauges and everything kept it really simple for them enough for them to like not crash the airplane um, or the sim. And then I'd have them turn around and I would coach them down and I would get them to fly like 
down the um, the Vegas Strip through the uh, fountain and then pull up because there is a bunch of cranes at the end. Um, and they all thought that was really cool. And then at the end, I would demonstrate to them um, our auto land capability. So I'd give them a Cat 3 approach and I'd basically show them what UPS's aircraft are capable of. So that way their packages get to their destination like on time, even if weather is like the nasty of the nasty. Um, so you're really an ambassador for the airline. Yeah. Yeah. You, you basically are. And that's, that's why it's taking those SIM tours is super important. Um, so I do that with the VIP customers and then they would go off and visit Worldport and actually see the, the facility itself, um, which was really cool. But then we, as interns, we could jump into the sim and fly it whenever it wasn't being used. So we would get in and there was one time um, one of our other interns, Terrence, we were out flying and I put him in Alaska, I think, Anchorage, and I had him take off and I gave him an engine separation on takeoff. And so then he was doing his single engine, like, you know, coming back to the airport, doing all that stuff. Um, and then I gave him a flame out on the approach. So he has a dual engine failure on the approach coming into Anchorage, Alaska. It was just, we have a good time with it. Um, I get in with an instructor on occasion and he'd coach me through some actual procedures. So yeah, we got to fly the SEM. Um, and then we had jump seat benefits on UPS. So one of our jobs as an intern was to go out and to see what was actually going on on the line and see like how we like UPS truly operated. So that was really cool too. Yeah. And I've, I've UPS myself home a few times. On the gym <laughs> <seat>. <laughs> yeah. And with that other company we won't mention, but the, uh, one of the things that was really interesting that you're talking about this internship was being able to, to parlay it into flying for Ameriflight and, mm-hmm. uh, and actually becoming a cargo pilot. I think a lot of people, when they think of cargo, there's so many things they think in their head, what is cargo flying all about? And I think it's different depending on what you do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so with that said, you, you've, many different aspects. So what what is it like to be a cargo pilot in what you do now? And how do you compare that to, say, uh, like a mainline UPS type of flying? Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to really um, look at mainline very much. I think I only jump seated a few times and I didn't. That's one thing that I do regret um, not doing during the internship is I didn't get to get out and really network with the line pilots as much as I would like. So I can't really speak on that aspect. I do know um, 121 cargo flying is a lot better than 135 on occasion. Um, (laughs) They get to sit in the office and drink their coffee and check weather while we are actually out on the line in the rain, um, in the snow, in the gusty winds, in the negative temperatures, all that kind of stuff. loading our our aircraft because we are our own load supervisors. UPS has load um, supervisors doing that for them. And because UPS, you have um, basically the like loading cans that all the packages are put on and then they just have to weigh those cans and place them specifically um, on the aircraft, like flight deck, if or not really flight deck, but the cargo deck, cargo hold. Um, they calculate all that for them. They, they take care of the loading for the pilots and the pilots walk out, get the paperwork, check over to make sure everything is correct, is complete. Um, they check all the hazmat paperwork. If they have any hazmat on board, they sign it, then they push back and then they fly. 
So it's a little more glamorous on the 121 cargo side as compared to the 135. But 135, um, it's not really that glamorous. It's not for the faint of heart. Like I said, you work outside doing load and unload in all kinds of weather. Um, in Montana, at one point when I was flying up there on the Brasilia, we had temperatures, uh, wind chills of negative 34, and the APU wouldn't start. And so there's no no heat on the plane. That was fun. So we were out in negative 34 degree temperatures. Um, We've seen similar temperatures here in Iowa. Um, You're in the rain, you know, you're in the heat, everything like that. So you, you really learn how to dress properly for the weather and you learn how to make sure you have gear with you. So that way, if you're caught in unforecasted weather, you can still prepare for it. Like I always have um, my rain gear rolled up in my backpack at the bottom of my backpack, no matter where I'm going, no matter what the forecast is, I always have my rain gear. Um, So yeah, that's a little different. Um, That's why it's not for really the faint of heart is if you hate the cold, definitely try and get a base or somewhere where there's no snow. I like the cold. So that's kind of that that, that kind of you know throws another aspect into it when you're considering doing it um it's very rewarding though when you actually do get into the cockpit and start flying um most of my work here at ameriflight has been single pilot aside from um the brasilia the brasilia is a two crew aircraft um so That's kind of daunting in itself as a single cargo pilot. You don't have anybody else to talk to. Um, You are the PIC and solely the PIC, and you are making all of the decisions. So that was really daunting um, to kind of get over that at first. And honestly, I think I struggled through training um, because I was slightly scared of it. I was having some issues going through training um, just because the mindset of you're going to be flying single pilot IFR in some pretty nasty conditions. And um, but once you get that first approach out of the way, um, get the first approach under your belt, you're pretty much set. So that builds a lot of confidence. Oh my gosh. You know, because yeah. later on you're going to be with somebody all the time in the cockpit. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of weird. Um because it's like, you know, you're the captain, but it's like all you have are boxes on board. Um, it's not all you have is boxes because they're very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to put yourself into like, I don't really know how to explain it. Um, so as far yeah. as, as you talked about the boxes and all that, so there's some good things about, I know that you described a lot of tough things as far as cargo is concerned. You're out there in the weather, uh, especially 135, but you know, as far as cargo in general, what do you think is the best part about it? Um, knowing that you have an impact on the community is the best part. A lot of the times, you know, before COVID-19 hit, it was kind of hit and miss on whether or not I felt like I had an impact on the community. I'll kind of share a story from when I was back in Montana. Um, there was an individual, I think it was in February of 2018. Um, there was an individual, a local doctor who liked to do backcountry skiing, um, liked to go out kind of on his own off the beaten trail, had all the equipment that he needed, had um, basically a radio beacon, personal radio beacon with him. Um, anybody who's going out in the backcountry in Montana in winter always needs to have it because when you have it on, you can search for people. Um, he had all of his equipment, everything like that, as far as I know. Um, he told his wife that he would meet her at a certain time. 
um, at one of the restaurants at the bottom of the resort and he never showed up and he never showed up, never showed up. She called the police and called out search parties and stuff like that. They were searching for him, searching for him. They sent helicopters out. They sent, you know, dogs. I don't need, I think they even had people out on horseback looking for him at one point. Um, but they never really found him during that entire search process. I got a call from dispatch uh, one day saying that you have a piece of rescue equipment on board today. As soon as you land at the airport, you get that over to Two Bears, which is the rescue helicopter um, and the rescue company out at the airport. You get that over to Two Bears immediately. And I knew at that point that, you know, today's flight had a mission like you. I had a specific mission assigned to that flight. Um, unfortunately, even with that piece of rescue equipment, they never found him until the snow melted because he was caught in an avalanche. Um, but just knowing that, you know, we had a small part in that search and rescue process, even though it was very indirect, it was just hauling a piece of rescue equipment, that piece of rescue equipment could have been the make or break depending on the situation. And because we were flying it over the mountain it got there four hours sooner than it would have if they were driving it. Um, so that's like one of the moments that really stands out in my mind. Um, another one is just during this whole COVID situation, there's been um, face masks, there's been toilet paper, we can all laugh about it. Um, there's been toilet paper on board. But I've had food shipments, perishables, you name it, like stuff like that, that's come through the airplane that kind of makes me rethink like, wow, if if I was not flying this, they might still get it, but it would take a lot longer. And the perishable goods, depending on where they're coming from, they might not be able to get them at all, just because how long it takes to drive things, it could spoil, it could sour before it even got there. So being able to see that on board really, you know, shows this is important. And we also haul like ag supplies. So I know coming from an ag background, I know how important it is to get parts, you know, to fix a tractor, to fix an uh, irrigation pivot there on time. So it's really interesting to see what comes through the plane. Most of the time it's Amazon boxes and that's like, okay, whatever. But when you see a lot of those other um, items coming through, that you can put a specific like mission to it's cool. And it, it really makes you love your job. Big impact on people's lives and on their mm -hmm. businesses. Yeah. Uh, as you described, it really is. Um, and that's something that I think you get a lot in, in flying in general. It's always good to get satisfaction in your job. And that's one way to do that. Um, but you know, you talked about being out in the weather as far as, you know, the flying is concerned. What are some of the other challenges or, or maybe some of the negatives to being, a, let's call them challenges as being a, a cargo pilot? Uh, the schedule is definitely one of those. Um, and it's not at a Mariflight specifically. It's overall, it's cargo in general, especially 135. A lot of people think that even though I'm cargo, I operate backside of the clock, and that's not true. We operate on either side of UPS, FedEx, and DHL. So they're operating on the backside of the clock. So we operate on either side of that. Not during the day, but basically in those really early morning time frames from like 3 to 10 in the morning, and then from like um, 3... PM to like eight, 9 PM at night, depending on the runs and everything's different throughout our entire system. Um, at a Mariflight, it's different at every base. 
each run at each base is different. Um, so there's a lot of uh, variety for it. Um, so you can find like a schedule that works better for you. But yeah, it's, it can definitely take a toll um, on, you know, your fatigue level. But you really have to understand yourself as a pilot and your level of fatigue. That way you can stay safe because you're the only one in the cockpit. You have to know what's going on with yourself because there's nobody over in the right seat or the left seat going, Hey, you look tired. You need to stay awake. You need to, you know, go get some coffee or something like that. So, um, I would say that's probably one of the most difficult challenges of being a cargo pilot. Um, another one for 135 that a lot of people don't think about is we fly into a lot of the smaller airports where the large GPS jets can't get into. That's why we're flying their, um, you know, freight. So with those smaller airports come issues, mainly during the winter time, um, struggling to get runway condition reports. I mean, we're operating at six o'clock in the morning. A lot of people aren't out of bed at six o'clock. So trying to get those runway condition reports is, you know, the runway complete sheet of ice, um, that kind of stuff. That can be an issue. Um, and then it gets boring. From time to time, like I fly the same route every single day. I've been flying the same route for the past year and a half. I know everything about this route. Um, and so that can get boring to some people. And it's gotten really boring to me. It's not until it's like, oh, we have thunderstorms today. Oh, it's going to be interesting kind of thing. So it's like you almost welcome some weather to make it interesting. <laughs> And then after three weeks of really hard IFR flying with no let up and like shooting approaches with RVR of 2400, you're like, okay, I'll take some VFR weather now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it can, it's definitely different everywhere you go as to what challenges you're going to face. But I would say the schedule in the airports are probably the biggest challenge. So as far as that uh, comparison to 135 and 121, you talked about the same routes over and over. Um, on the 121 side, uh, do you see that they have more, from your experience at UPS, have more variety? Um, I'm, I've never really done anything with 121, so um, I'm sure you have. If, yeah. you, uh, if, <laughs> if I am saying anything incorrect, let me know. Um, but you guys have the bidding schedule or the bidding system. So if you want a different trip, oh, you can say like, oh, I want to go to like Key West today. Oh, I want to, you know, do the Honolulu run. I want to go to Anchorage, Alaska. You can kind of like mix it up in how you bid for your schedule. Obviously, seniority is going to play a role in that, whether you get that or not. Um, but you can like mix up the routes that you fly. We don't really have that opportunity to do that. Um, we do have two runs out of Omaha, but in a year and a half, you know both runs very well. Um, you can <laughs> offer to go TDY, which is temporary duty yonder, and I've gone TDY a few times, which actually you know throws some fun into it because you know you can be sent out to Seattle, you can be sent out to one of the other bases, so then you have to like learn a new route in a new area. Um, so that can be fun. It can also be very uh, intimidating. I've flown at Beach 99 into LAX at night with like all of the hectic, like I had a 747 like on my tail one time and that was fun. Um, so basically flying a Beach 99 single pilot into LAX is kind of intimidating. Um, very scary at first, but once you get it down and you're like, oh, I got this, I can do this kind of thing. You're like, oh, okay. Um, another confidence builder. But yeah, I mean, that's really the only opportunity that we have to mix things up is if you go TDY. 
So, yeah, in, in that case, yeah, I guess it is uh, better. For a bigger network carrier, I guess is a better way to put it. Because if you look at some of the regionals even, they have these huge networks, and the SkyWest comes to mind. I mean, it's a ginormous network, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, going back to what you said about the time zones, though, and the time that you actually fly, I should say, interestingly, a lot of carriers that are carrying passengers are doing the same. I mean, I'm sure you've heard from your friends. It's like, I have times where I was flying more at night than my friends that are flying cargo. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Uh, so that, that can happen in that manner, depending on, like you said, with your seniority, or even you may choose to do that. There's people that do uh, passenger flying. So as far mm-hmm. as the difference is concerned, yeah, there there's a difference as far as interacting with other people, that's for sure. And you're by yourself, which is huge. 135, obviously 121, you have another person with you, but you don't have the flight crew, the flight attendants, you don't have that whole interaction. Um, so it, would that be something that maybe even yourself would be interested in as maybe get a little more involved in that aspect of passenger flying? I actually had a class date with Republic on April 3rd that was postponed due to COVID-19. Um, my father last year had, um, was admitted to the hospital in an emergency situation. Um, basically what they found was he had a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Um, they are very rare tumors. Um, like 80, I think like 90% of the tumors that they take out that are those gastrointestinal stromal tumors. Um, they are benign. His came back malignant. Um, so with that family issue, at the end of this month, two years ago, I found out that I had a fibroadenoma breast tumor. And I thought I had breast cancer at 23 years old. So going through two tumors in my family has kind of um, shifted my perspective on life a little bit. Um, and I, I love it at Ameriflight. I really love UPS and stuff like that. And I am still trying to strive to get back to UPS, but I was started looking at different avenues on how to get there. Um, just because I wanted to be closer to home, um, closer to my family, there is a very high probability that that tumor that my dad has, um, could come back just because of the rarity of it. Um, they don't know a lot about it. He's doing great right now. Um, they took it out all the lymph nodes around there was good. So he's at his normal self um, currently. But it's just that, you know, it, it's kind of in the back of your mind. Like, you know, dad had one. I had one at 23. What's next kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to get on with uh, Republic Airlines and try and move back home to Indiana. But COVID-19 had other other ideas. Um, so, yeah. I'm looking at possibly switching to passengers. Um, right now, I'm keeping all my options open. So, yeah, and hopefully, you, you know, you, your father has a speedy recovery. And in uh, yeah. those type of things in your life do change your, your perspective. So base close to home is really important. And yeah. it's not it's not just about the flying, that's for sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, in my life, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I spent a long – people asked me why I was where I was. And I said, well, because my, both my parents were sick. And 
I wanted mm-hmm. to be based close to my mom and dad. You know, they since passed, uh, but I would never have had that opportunity uh, without having a base uh, close to them and and moving to that base, even though I didn't want to be there. So part of this whole flying is it's not just about the flying. It's also about your whole lifestyle. And you really do, like you said, you know, you, you really do have to think about that and, mm-hmm. and bring that into your, your perspective in life. And I'm glad you have that opportunity to, to change. And uh, hopefully in the future, things will, will, will get better. They will, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and you move forward. Um, but as far as the cargo is flying, are, are you getting quite a few hours in? I think a lot of people ask that question. It varies per base, per run, again. Um, on my run that I do out here coming out to Broken Bow, Nebraska, I get about 2.8 on average a day. Um, so it's not a whole lot, uh, unfortunately. Um, that's pretty much like the average across the board is anywhere from two to four hours a day. Uh, there are some runs. I know the LAX run that I was talking about, it gets like five hours a day. Um, there's one down in our Dallas base that, um, is a five hour a day run. Most of our stuff down in the Caribbean, like out through Puerto Rico, um, it's a little bit higher time as well. Um, but most, most of your other bases are just on average, like two to four. So unfortunately not, not a whole lot. Not like the the folks there, you know, Republic, et cetera, doing those 800 hours and sometimes 1,000 hours in a year. It's quite a bit there. Yep. Um, you know, one thing that I think is is uh, important as far as looking at the perspective from uh, the career and continuity is the fact that cargo, in this case, has actually done really well during COVID-19. So well, let me ask you, what impact has it had on on your career and on your flying? Um, obviously the biggest impact was, um, the postponing of the Republic class date, but as far as the cargo side, um, it really hasn't had an impact at all from what I have seen at, um, the Omaha base. I can't really speak for any other pilot across our, um, network at Omaha. The only thing that we saw when it first hit was there was a huge increase in, um, cargo. Like I was at a hundred percent almost like every day for an entire week, we had to call in our reserve pilot to carry the overflow, um, all that kind of fun. And, um, then once everything started shutting down, like the businesses, the non-essentials, you saw it start to like dwindle. And then there are days where I, I was at 50% capacity. Like normally I haul anywhere from 1100 to 2200 on occasion up to 2600 pounds of cargo every day and i was at 800 um so there was a huge decrease there for a while and then once things started opening back up we we've had a very huge influx in our capacity again like today alone we i think they had to call in another reserve pilot to haul some of the overflow cargo um from all of the aircraft at omaha and so with that, it was just like, we've seen that, that small dip in, in volume is the only huge impact we've seen. Um, obviously drivers, loaders are wearing gloves, masks, social distancing is trying to be adhered to whenever possible. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, I was, it was interesting to see the change in the cargo. Like we went from a lot of Amazon boxes to a ton of medical supplies 
Um, I had a human transplant on board one day. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, knowing that, you know, somebody is getting possibly like an organ or something to help their life, um, help their health status improve. Um, and I played a small part in that. That was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, there hasn't really been much of a change. Um, the one thing I am nervous about for career progression, however, is depending on how long this, you know, pandemic lasts, how long the closures last, the travel bans, all that kind of stuff. How are the airlines going to come out of this? Are they going to have to start furloughing more pilots? Um, I know United had released, um, you know, a statement saying that if things didn't turn around by October, they were like furloughing a third of their pilots or something along those lines. Um, I thought I saw an article about that somewhere, but that in my mind, I was like, "Uh Oh, if you know, 12,000 pilots are flooding the market, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the cargo side of things. Cause cargo right now is booming. Like all of the stuff that's being shipped, everything like that. So if UPS fills all their positions, and they're no longer hiring because there's this influx of pilots to the market. What's going to happen? Am I going to be staying at Ameriflight? Am I going to be, you know, trying to get back home? What's what's going to happen kind of thing. Um, so that's been a big indirect impact um, is just kind of what's next. Nobody it, really knows. Yeah. And one of the things that, uh, that was a great illustration is how the whole industry is impacted by this. Uh, because then again, like you said, you get these very experienced pilots. I know one, the first furlough I went through after 9-11, uh, we had people in my class with 8,000 hours at a regional airline. Uh, you know, and that was at Sky West. I mean, that was incredible. Uh, you never saw that before. And, uh, and now we're starting to see a little bit of that happen now. So, yeah, it, but it'll change eventually. It's just how long. We just don't know. And, and that's the one blessing of being where you are right now in the cargo world is, you know, usually, or especially in this world of COVID-19, it's something that's moving forward because there's so many critical items that still have to be shipped. Uh, and in the passenger flying, many different airlines are, are, you know, they're affected differently. You know, I know in my world, I, I'm flying a lot. Well, I actually haven't flown in months. Uh, but it's really interesting how it really has affected so many people. And there's so many, I can't tell you how many times people I say this, you know, God, I wish I had a job that you have right now, you know, uh, flying cargo. So that is a good, a good thing. That's a blessing there. Uh, so we always, a, a lot of times what happens in our career is we look at where we are and we don't realize, you know, how blessed we are. And, and that's always important no matter what we're doing in our careers uh, and moving forward. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- this has been, God, it's been really awesome, Kaylee, as far as uh, talking about different things in the cargo world, et cetera. And uh, I was wondering, is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about as far as the career and, and uh, I know we talked about the importance of networking, et cetera, in this. But uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to you know, kind of put forth to those that are possibly getting involved in the cargo world? You talked about some of the younger folks. But I think, too, there's some folks that are even older, I think, getting involved in what you're doing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that I can say is that uh, cargo is not really pushed in the aviation industry as a career. You know, going through college, a lot of people, um, they see corporate with the fancy flashy jets they see the airlines with the you know international travel they see all that kind of stuff and then you look at cargo and it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild 
Um, some of the misconceptions about that um, is that it's cowboy flying. It's not that at all. So rest assured, anybody who is looking into cargo and if they think that, you know, one of the things that is kind of um, holding them back, they think that, you know, it's crazy flying, you're going to have, you know, crappy equipment, crappy planes, horrible maintenance, you're going to be flying all night long and really nasty weather, that kind of thing. And like being flying through the mountain on a single engine. Um, it's not cowboy flying. It is very structured. Our training is some of the hardest training you will ever go through. There are retired airline guys that come through Ameriflight's training and can't make it through the training because they know you're going to be single pilot IFR in some nasty weather um, just because that is the nature of the job, but they want to prepare you for that. Um, so anybody who is looking into getting into cargo, prepare yourself for some very difficult training. Um, it's very rewarding once you get through that and you, you hear people saying stuff like, wait, you fly single pilot IFR, you off steam gauges and you're hand flying. You don't have an autopilot at all. It's like, nope. Um, so with that, you're increasing your skill as a pilot. You're also learning a lot about yourself as a person, your confidence levels, how to overcome some struggles, um, some of the challenges in life as well as in your career. Um, overall, cargo has definitely challenged me personally and professionally, and I I don't think I would be the pilot and the person I am today if I would not have had this opportunity um, to fly cargo. So don't don't shy away from cargo because it it's kind of portrayed as the redheaded stepchild. Um, it's a very, very rewarding career. Um, and once you get to the big guys, UPS, FedEx, DHL, those kind of places, um, it's lucrative as well. So I would say um, if that's the avenue you want to go down, go for it. Um, there's, there's really nothing stopping you but yourself. Yeah, it's, uh, I agree. And one of the things I think people don't realize is how much it is very lucrative. Let's just say that the pay is really, really good, especially after your first year. It's amazing. Uh, and when you said that, it's really interesting, the perspective, because if I, I talk to my friends that fly the C-17s and uh, some of the C-5 guys, and they all were looking at going to the UPS and the cargo route, and that's the way they wanted to go. Whereas a lot of people, when they're starting out, they think of cargo, just like you said, it's all like cowboy flying it's uh, that perception is from 30 some odd years ago possibly and and that may have been true maybe not but it, it's changed quite a bit over time uh but uh but you know okay this has been awesome having you here and if anybody has questions they can write us a feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com and if you don't mind i'll forward them on to you and uh possibly uh you can answer those questions and we'll read them on here or uh answer them personally yeah for sure um that's pretty much all i got i'm willing to help anybody who wants to get into the cargo um, cargo industry, whether that's insight, advice, whatever. Awesome. Awesome. You know, one of the things I really uh, love is flying with a lot of folks that have flown cargo because they'll talk about all the cool places they've been uh, and the things they've done because you'll have those stories for the rest of your life. Even though you may go into the world of, of 121, you're talking about single pilot IFR. You know, I have over 15,000 hours and maybe five uh, single pilot IFR. And, uh, you know, it's either I was with a student or I, uh, or I was in the airline world, but, uh, it really is quite, it, it's different all of a sudden realizing, you know, you're not only there, 
uh, you're the captain, but you're also alone and you're making all the decisions. And, and that's really good training. Uh, you'll use that for the rest of your career. But uh, and then thanks so much. And uh, and thanks, Matt, also for for coming here today, our, our program coordinator. Do you have any questions? I, I didn't ask you that as far as anything else to add to that. The one thing we didn't touch on is, Kaylee, what do you do all day in between flights? <laughs> um, it varies. Today, I actually, because I um, was up pretty early, I was napping and I set an alarm for like one o'clock so I could get ready for the podcast <laughs> and I hit the snooze button. I woke up like 20 minutes before the scheduled time and I'm like, oh no. Um, so sometimes I'll nap. Um, most of the time I bring stuff from home to work on paying bills, you know, the boring stuff that I don't want to deal with when I'm at home. Um, I'm also the assistant director of publicity for the Aries Classic, and I handle all of their social media uh, accounts. And so I am trying to give that a full facelift, um, going through and researching more marketing strategies, stuff like that. So I do a lot of um, that while I'm at the outstation, and I'm also getting married in three months. Um, so I've been doing a lot of wedding planning at the outstation. Um, so that's pretty much what I do with my time, um, photography dabbling with that, reading books, pretty much anything I feel like doing. Well, hopefully we see you at the uh, Air Race Classic in Lakeland next year. Yeah, that's right. The uh, And those that don't know what the Air Race Classic is, you can, we'll have a link down below. And uh, we're going to be hosting that here in Lakeland in 2021. But 2020 is a, is a different spot. So go to Air Race Classic, um, really. And Lynn Kaywood, we've had on the show a few years ago. She was involved and still is involved with the Air Race Classic. What a wonderful thing that that is. And it's uh, a lot of people don't realize it's been around since the 20s, 29 or something like that. 1929 was the first race. Right, first race in 1929. Uh, and then it changed names a few times. Uh, Powder Puff Derby, when Air Race Classic was, and I can't remember what the first name was. but uh, First one was the uh, Women's, um, it was the Women's Air Derby. Um, and then it switched to right. the All Women's Transcontinental Air Race, and then, aka the Powder Puff Derby. And then it went to the Air Race Classic. So one uh, one thing that I really think is great about having you here is it, it's always tough to get people to talk about the cargo world, especially the 121 folks and and the different things and the challenges. And Matt's question was great. What do you do uh, during the day, you know, time off, et cetera? And uh, for those of us that do a lot of uh, night flying, we wind up sleeping, taking naps, just like you said. Uh, and you have to understand how to do that. And that's another skill that you've probably learned is how to make yourself go to sleep, et cetera. And that's something that's really important to be used. Uh, throughout your career that's for sure but uh, anyway there's you know again Kayla this has been awesome and Matt thanks so much for coming by uh, if you're interested in an interview on Aviation Careers Podcast Matt uh, Len is actually a new program coordinator also does some great work down there in Punta Gorda uh, with the Florida International Air Show and uh, in charge of uh, doing uh, the air show as far as Aviation performer. Director now that's it Aviation Director now and uh, and we can't wait to see that happen again we'll once all this is <laughs> but uh, again, all the links that we talked about are down below. And don't forget to visit our sponsor as far as the podcast and also uh, as far as the scholarships guide. We talked about scholarships, and you get a free scholarships guide uh, using the coupon code Plain English Sim. And uh, go visit our sponsor, plainenglishsim.com. They're a great way to practice all the radio, both VFR and IFR. And, uh, and please visit our YouTube channel down below. Kaylee, again, thanks so much for coming here. We're definitely going to forward some of the questions I'm sure we'll have. 
Awesome. Well, thank you guys for having me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be an advocate for, um, you know, the cargo pilots and possibly answer anybody's question about cargo flying. So if you're somebody that's listening right now and you're interested in cargo flying or anything else that we talked about, please visit those links. But one thing I want to challenge you with is this. Uh, I know it's tough right now and I know it's hard because of what's happening in the economy and the COVID-19, but uh, these things have happened in the past and we will see another one in the future. But the most important thing is to continue moving forward in your career and your life. And one of the ways that you can do that is to make sure you take a step right after this podcast ends and, and do that right now, you know, when you stop this podcast, when you stop jogging or driving your car, whatever it may be, write down a note, call somebody, ask a question, look at the show notes. But I want you to make sure that you continually go forward in your career, even during these tough times. Uh, so please take one step towards your career goal today. Well, I really appreciate everybody being here today, Kaylee and Matt, and I appreciate you listening. And again, this is a time that's a challenge for everybody, but we've seen these challenges in the past. And I know if this is your first one, it's tough, but make sure you continue to do something today with your family, in your life, and in your career. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, all rights reserved.